Uh, it is good to be with you all this morning, and uh, it's a, a time of year full of grief. In case you didn't know, it is the time of year when everybody, well, not everybody, but many people become experts on something they know very little about until games start being played, and then you realize you're not much of an expert. Yes, I'm talking about March Madness. And uh, I am one who, uh, I, I watched literally zero minutes of college basketball all season long. And then I filled out a bracket and uh, started to realize that I didn't know as much as I thought I knew. And, uh, you know, the response usually, at least for me, usually isn't, man, it was a, a really great game. And I can't believe I got the pick wrong. But what a, a wonderful game. The response usually is like deep sadness. How did I not know? This thing's having a hard time staying on. How did I not know that, uh, who was going to win this game? How did I pick it incorrectly? How is my bracket already destroyed? And if, if I'm, you know, like really invested in it, I find myself very sad and grieving that I wasn't able to do a good job of picking my teams for my March Madness bracket. Now, my wife, who um, also doesn't watch college basketball and also never fills out a bracket, she, um, she thinks it's ridiculous. Uh, and she says it to me every year. She's like, don't fill out a bracket this year. I'm like, why? It's so fun. And I'm going to get so many of them right. And she says, because inevitably you're going to be wrong and then you're going to be sad and, uh, and I just don't want to deal with it. <laughs> We're going to talk about grief today. And uh, it's not the kind of grief that comes from uh, silly bat. Now, okay, how many of you still have your champion left in your bracket if you filled one out? Okay, yeah, like two hands. All right, that's right. Um, you know, there's this little team from, I think they're from New Jersey called St. Peter's. And they've... Yeah, they, um, they're like a 15 seed. If you, if you don't know anything about it, like the lowest you could be is a 16 seed. And uh, they're a 15 seed and they've won their first two games. And it's only right as St. Peter's that they're going to deny one more team from <laughs> moving on to the next round. We'll see what happens. I, I'm cheering for them. Well, we are in the Gospel of John as we have been and will continue to be. And the passage today is in chapter 11. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm going to read it for you. It is a little bit long. And uh, I, I you know, try not to be too upset with Scott because he actually stopped the passage right before the really good stuff. And surprisingly, he gets to preach about it next week. But um, there's a lot of really good stuff in here. So let's read this together. This is John chapter 11. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. I actually love that little parenthetical comment because we don't get that story in John till the next chapter. So it's, um, you know, for people who don't like spoilers, spoiler alert, um, that's who she is. Um, but uh, 
the author of John lets us know before then. Uh, this, this is who it is. She's the one. So the sister sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one that you love is sick. I'm going to, can I change to the wireless? All right, there we go. Okay. Lord, the one who you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you are going back? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. After he said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. After she had said this, she went back and called on her sister Mary, or called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at a place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house, comforting her, noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, And the Jews who had come along with her also weeping. He was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind 
of the blind man have kept this man from dying. The word of the Lord. This, uh, this is a, a passage, whenever I've studied it before and preached it before, I've never stopped before the actual resurrection of Lazarus. Um, and I, again, sorry if you didn't know that was going to happen. That's going to happen. <laughs> but stopping it here uh, was really helpful to me as I, I considered what's going on in this passage and what there is for us to consider and to learn from in it. And I, I want to share with you four different ways that I see grief operating in this passage. I think uh, what we can learn from these four different ways of grief are, are how we in our own lives are invited by Jesus, and even more than invited by Jesus, how we are joined by Jesus in our own grief. These are the four different responses to grief that I want to explore with you this morning. The first is Thomas's response. And Thomas' response was to join in, to, to act on his grief. I want to consider also Martha's response, which was much more cerebral, theological, um, to, to have a conversation about what Lazarus' death meant and what resurrection meant. I want to explore with you Mary's response, which was one of trust. And I want to explore with you the onlookers expression, which was one of doubt. And I think as we explore these, what we're going to see, hopefully, is a biblical, uh, a biblical response to grief. We are people who grieve. And some of us grieve well, and some of us don't grieve well. And some of us have been taught that grief is something to move past, and others of us have spent a lot of time, perhaps even what feels like too much time, grieving different things that we've lost. And, and, and grief is something that Jesus cares deeply about. Uh, I, I will even say Jesus uh, himself is one who demonstrates for us that grief is an essential piece of being human. It's an essential piece of how we live in this world. So let's uh, jump in and look at each of these four different responses to grief. The first is Thomas's response. And just as a reminder, this is, uh, this is what Thomas said in response to Lazarus' death. Then Thomas said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go to Bethany, back to Judea with Jesus, so that we may die with him. Now, it's a little bit unclear the, the, uh, the hymn that Thomas is talking about. And, and this is the reason. Certainly they know that Lazarus has died. Um, that, and they knew Lazarus. Uh, Lazarus was a friend. They had spent time in his home. But uh, what we also explored last week in uh, John chapter 10 was uh, just days before Jesus had been in Judea and had been met with hostility. In fact, had nearly escaped his own death. He, he, he did escape. He nearly experienced his own death at the hands of the people there who were threatened by him, who were... Uh, in the act of picking up stones ready to stone him for what he had been teaching and what he had been doing. And so Jesus' desire to go back into the heart of this hostile place was one which his disciples knew was not a wise move. Now, you know, many of us 
know the places where perhaps we would be received in a hostile manner, and we just don't go there, right? Um, you know, whether it was me as a high schooler recognizing that if I walked down a certain hallway, I'd see certain people who felt hostility towards me, and so I would choose to go a different path, usually more circuitous, usually uh, making me late to class, but still avoiding the hostility. Jesus himself says, I'm going back into this hostile environment. And so Thomas, in his grief, as he's trying to make sense of, of Lazarus's death and, and Jesus not responding right away, going back to heal Lazarus from his sickness, Thomas says, I, I'm going to go with you, and it may mean death for me. I'm going to respond to my grief through action. Now, perhaps this is something that is very familiar to you. When you have a, a moment of sadness, when you experience something, whether uh, it was something that you were expecting or something that was unexpected, that, that, that draws up within you feelings of grief, your go-to is to find something to do. Maybe it's something to do with your hands. Maybe it's a problem to solve. Maybe it's uh, mindless activity. But we as humans will and can respond to grief in that way, finding something to do to keep us busy so that um, whether it, it is to solve a problem that's a direct result of our grief or it's something to distract us from the grief that we're feeling. We recognize Thomas's response as a normal response to grief. One commentator wrote that Thomas's desire to act on his grief is at the same time despondent, like I'll go die like Lazarus or like Jesus may be dying. There's, there's a despondence. He's like, well, I'm going to die anyway. But also there's this sense of, uh, of, of heroicism in what he's doing. Like he knows what lies before him and yet he is willing to act on what he's feeling. That's Thomas's response to grief, to act. Martha's response. Now, I love Martha's response. If you remember the story in Luke 10 where Jesus visits the home of Martha and Mary, Martha is the one who is preparing with hospitality, with this great desire to serve Jesus. She's uh, working throughout the house to prepare a meal to clean. And, and her sister Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus, not helping. And Martha comes to Jesus and, and she's like, hey, buddy, will you tell my sister to help me out? And Jesus responds to Martha, Mary has chosen what is right. And we know from that story and also from this story that Martha is someone who likes to get things done. I love that. People who love to get things done. And they do it. And Martha, in her grief, she, uh, she, she wants to get something done. She heads towards Jesus. She doesn't wait. She hears that Jesus is coming. She drops what she's doing. And she goes to find him. And in her conversation with him, in fact, let's read it again. We see that Martha is someone who has thought deeply about what belief in Jesus means. 
She's theologically educated. She's studied. She's prayed. She's paid attention to the Hebrew scriptures. She knows her stuff. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know, I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother, your brother will rise again. And Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into the world. This is not just a, 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 you know, a, a conversation happening in passing. This is a conversation that's rooted in deep theological truth. Martha knows who the Messiah is. Martha knows that resurrection is, is a part of not just a Jewish understanding of the afterlife, but it's something that Jesus himself can enact. Like There is in Martha this deep knowledge, this belief that is born out of study, out of wrestling. And Martha's response to grief is to go to those things that she has known, to study, and to then go and question Jesus. It's like a theological exam that she is giving to him. In essence, she's saying to him, I know my stuff, Jesus. I know my beliefs. They are rooted deep in Hebrew scriptures. They're in the story of the nation of Israel. Like, I, I know my things, Jesus, and I know who you are. And I know what you can do. And Jesus sees her theological inquiry, her, her wrestling with what she believes. And, and he doesn't say to her, now is not the time to deal with these really difficult theological understandings. Like, just be sad. He doesn't say that to her. He responds to her with one of the most theologically rich statements in all of Scripture. I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me will live even though they die. You see, Jesus sees what she is coming to him with in her grief, and he responds accordingly. Now, maybe some of you find yourselves in a similar place. When, when grief happens, you just want to know the answer. And so you study you, you pull out your Bible and, and you read. You look for answers. You talk to those who, who, are, uh, who studied Scripture, who, who know theology. You try to find answers to the things that you are experiencing. And Jesus responds to Martha's inquiry here by engaging her also theologically. In essence, saying a response to grief that is deeply intellectual is acceptable. What about Mary's response? 
Mary stayed home while Martha bolted out of the house to meet Jesus. And then she only left home once Martha came back to tell her that Jesus wanted to speak with her. We know from Luke 10 and the story of Martha and Mary uh, when Jesus visited their house that that Mary is more of a contemplative. She's more of the the kind of person who, who can sit and be. You know those people. Like nothing phases them. They always seem to be drawing from this deep well. And Mary runs to Jesus. She finds him there. And she simply says to him, if you, had, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. That's it. This trust in who Jesus was. This experience with grief that doesn't try to explain it away, that doesn't try to act, that just sits with it. But some of us, in our response to grief, feel the same way. We feel perhaps paralyzed. We feel sometimes like uh, we respond to grief with this deep trust. Like we experience something really challenging. And people sort of expect us to have this really emotional outburst or, or this, uh, these doubts that well up or some kind of you know, intellectual wrestling that's going on. And, and, and we simply say, like, it's hard and also I trust God. That's what Mary's response is to the grief that she's experiencing. Simply one of trust. And finally, the response of the onlookers. These were the people who, when Mary left the house, went with her. They saw and heard the interaction happening between Mary and Jesus, they saw Jesus moved to tears over his own grief. And their response? Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Their response was one of doubt. Wait a minute, isn't isn't this the guy who's already done some pretty incredible things? How come he couldn't have kept Lazarus from dying? And how often is our response to grief one in which we feel doubts popping up? And I don't know what kind of um, family you grew up in, what kind of church you grew up and if you grew up in a church what kind of experience you've had with the church but there's a problem that we have in I'll say American Christianity and it's this we make it seem like a person who has doubts is somehow weaker in their faith and that my friends is just not true Doubt is a part of existence in this world. We encounter things that are entirely impossible to understand. And we start to have little thoughts that creep into our minds. Little questions that arise. And if you've ever 
ever doubted that Jesus is okay with our doubts, then we don't need to look any further than the story of Thomas after Jesus' resurrection. Thomas, who is featured in this story. Thomas, the actor, the one who wanted to do things in response to his grief. The one who, after Jesus has overcome death, says, I don't believe, actually, that he did it. And I'm not going to until I can feel the holes in his side and touch his hands where the nails were driven through. And Jesus' response to Thomas in that moment is not, once you've figured it out and you are sure of who I am and what I've done, then we can have a relationship. He says to him, come and feel and see. In the midst of your doubt, here I am. It's a perfectly normal response to grief, to have doubts. And I hope that as a church, as a faith community, we can be people who are accepting of each other's doubts. We're a place where people can express their doubts because in doing so, we find that Jesus is there in the midst of those doubts. I don't know where you see yourself in each of these four different responses to grief. And certainly these are not the only responses to grief that one can have. But I think they do a great job of showing us a a variety of ways to respond to our grief. Whether you're someone who takes action like Thomas. Whether you're someone who likes to to wrestle intellectually with what, um, what you're experiencing like Martha. Whether it's someone who despite Everything that would make sense is trusting of Jesus like Mary or somebody who, like the onlookers, is full of doubt. All of these responses are different from each other. But do you notice how Jesus responds to each of them? He accepts all of them. There's not one instance where he says to the person grieving, What are you doing? Just trust me. He says to each of them by his presence and by his words that their response to grief is acceptable. In fact, what I love about this passage and this is where we encounter the good news, the gospel of Jesus, is that Jesus not only accepts their grief, but he joins them in their grief. He joins them in their grief. I remember being a kid and how much pride I had in the fact that I could say, I memorized a verse of the Bible. And someone had asked me, like, what is it? I'm like, Jesus wept. <laughs> Two-word verse, all right. Two words and maybe perhaps the two, two of the most profound words that Jesus, that, ex- that describe what Jesus did, and how Jesus enters into our own experience. You see, in our grief, Jesus meets us because he himself has experienced grief. As we make our way towards Easter, we're going to read stories. We're going to talk about the fact that that Jesus, as he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, was sweating blood. That Jesus, as he was hanging on the cross, was crying out for all to hear, My God, why have you forsaken me? These are words that are full of grief. 
Because Jesus didn't just say, I will comfort you in your grief, but Jesus entered into grief himself. He knows exactly what it is like to grieve. Now, all of us have experienced some kind of grief, whether in the last week, the month, the year, the last two years. And all of us will experience some kind of grief in the days and the weeks and the months and the years to come. Being human means that we are going to experience grief. And I believe it is essential. I believe this story in John 11 teaches us that it is absolutely necessary for us to grieve what we have lost. We have to be people who can grieve. Not only because grieving is healthy, but because in our grief, Jesus meets us. But the problem is if we don't deal with our grief, not only are we missing out on an opportunity to commune with the living God, but we're also creating patterns in our own lives that are going to show up in unhealthy ways. There's a a child psychologist whose name is Amanda Siderhelm who writes... This, my, my monster, she says, keeps me awake all hours and unsettles my tummy. She's a child therapist, all right? That's why she says tummy. Crawling out of bed to get a glass of water, I try to outwit this monster, but it follows me into the bathroom. I hear the floorboards creaking. I look down, expecting to see it crawling up towards me. I feel floored, scared. My monster is called grief. And it is familiar to many of us. Residing inside our disrupted sleep patterns, our waking nightmares. I wonder when grief will disappear. When will it leave me alone? But I've come to realize that grief is the result of feeling all my losses. It's part of the human being experience. And the more I feel it, the more I call it out, the more I name it, the more I claim it and accommodate it, the less scary it feels and the more expansive my capacity for resilience becomes sometimes I call it by other names anxiety vulnerability sadness I'm old enough to be able to name this monster and she goes on to write children's Monster cages have been rattled during coronavirus. I would say all of us have had our monster cages rattled over these past two years. And we need to be ready to help each other recognize that. To call each other out by all of our names. To claim these monsters just as we do our own. To prevent them from settling in, taking up a longer residence where they might turn into projections and acting out behaviors. Why do we deal with grief? Because if we don't, it's going to show up in ways that are unhealthy. It's going to show up in ways that hurt us and hurt other people. Most importantly, why do we deal with grief? Because Jesus himself comes to us, comes to us in our grief. Jesus himself grieved. John 11 gives us not an expansive list of ways to grieve, but it certainly shows us that grief is a part of life with God. And we're not given a blueprint for the most holy way to grieve, but we 
are assured that in our grief, Jesus is there with us. This is the gospel. This is the good news. Jesus meets us in our grief. He enters into it with us. And as we experience Jesus accepting us, however we wrestle with grief, we learn that only Jesus has the power to resurrect us, to point us, to bring us to life. A life that is lived here in this present moment, in the midst of all the difficulties and challenges, but also a life that will live forever with him. And this is why we practice communion. This is why we join together regularly to say, we are people who need Jesus. We look at the world around us and we look at our own lives and our own experiences and we see really hard things. And as we wrestle with that grief, we recognize that Jesus himself experienced it and is there with us. And as we partake of the bread and of the juice, we are partaking in the life that God has promised to us. And it's one that is not overcome by death, but one that is promised to live forever with God. Let's pray. God, we are people who we have experienced a lot. We have felt deep sadness. Even now, uh, some of us are here carrying deep grief. We don't know what to do with it, and so we try, we wrestle with it, we act, we, we, uh, we try to explain it away, we, we trust, we doubt all of these ways that we encounter our grief, God, and we find that as we do so, you meet us there in our grief. You yourself grieved. It's not a foreign concept to you. And we find that as we can grieve and as we do grieve and we meet you there, that the work that you did in the life of Lazarus is work that you are going to do in us, that you are going to resurrect us. Not just in the life to come, but even here in this moment. God, may we experience this promise. May you resurrect us. And may we grieve, knowing that in doing so, we commune with you. God, we love you, and we're so grateful for how you love us. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, as we've been making our way towards Easter through this the season of Lent, I know that there are a number of you and of us that have been fasting from something, abstaining from, from something. And, and one thing we've talked about over the last few weeks and leading up into the season of Lent is that, you know, we give up these things, but then Sunday is 
is not a, a fasting day. Sunday is a, it's a feast day, and, and we're going to celebrate the resurrection. We're going to feast on, on Jesus. And so this morning, as we've spent a week either holding back or holding off on something and letting go of something, self-reflecting, maybe even repenting, lamenting, and possibly even mourning and grieving. This morning as we come to the table, we have an opportunity to, to fast on one who says, I am the resurrection and I am the life. He's the one that, that offers hope and, and eternal life to us. And so this morning, I'm going to invite you to, to come up and, and to receive the elements. We have three different places so you can come and, and just grab the elements. But then I want you to hold on to them for a moment before uh, taking them. We're going to take them uh, together. So you'll come and, and receive them and then just make your way back to your seat. And part of that is, in, is intentional so that you would have a few moments as you're, as you're making your way up, as you're, you're walking back, as you're sitting and, and waiting for us to take this together to, to prepare your hearts to receive communion. Last week we talked about just the, the idea of, Lord, search my heart and know my anxious thoughts. Know the things that are going on in my life and lead me along a path that's righteous. And, and so take some time to just prepare your hearts and consider what you might want to, to pray to the Lord, to ask of the Lord, to repent of with the Lord. And then after we're all back at our seats, we'll, we'll take communion together. So uh, we're going to just put up a little bit of music. As you're ready, you can come and, and grab these elements and take them back to your seat. If you prefer just a, a single serve communion, there's some of those up here as well. So the music will come up and you can come up when you're ready. Now, there are a number of things that, that we can consider and that we should be considering as, as we take communion. But one of the things that I think we forget often is that when Jesus instituted this, this meal, when he had this first opportunity with his disciples, when he said the words that we're going to read today as, as we take communion together, is, is that he was saying this with, with a group of people. A group of people who were following Jesus together, and Jesus was right with them. He was in, in their midst. And so when we take communion, it, it can feel like this, this solitary act. It can feel like this is just between the Lord and I, and, and in some ways it is. But I think one of the reminders that, that we need, even that I think fits in with what Jamie was sharing about this morning, is that as we take communion, it is a reminder that we are not alone as we take communion, that Jesus is with us in this moment, that he has joined us in humanity and has offered his life to us, and we will remember that. But that as we take communion, we are not taking this all by ourselves. We are part of, of a family, a family of God that, that will remember the works of God through the man, Jesus Christ, together. And so this morning, we want to do that in a, in a unique way. And so this might stretch you just a tiny bit, but not a ton. So bear with me. I'm going to encourage, ask you, or I'm going to invite you to, to stand up if you're able. 
And then what I'd like you to do is from where you're standing is to just face towards the middle of the room. Like kind of just in the empty space, just maybe right in the, the bare pavement. Hey, you're going to have to turn all the way around to do that. And the reason I ask you to do that is because at this point you can likely see some other people in the room. And I know that that can feel a little bit awkward. Someone just made eye contact with you, all that stuff. But, but it, what I want you to see is that there's other people that are, that are a part of this family. That as we take communion, we're not taking communion on our own. It's not just God and us. It's not me and Jesus. It's, it's me and my family. It's me and my brothers and my sisters. It's me and my mother and my father. It's, it's me and, and my family this morning. So keep that in mind as we take communion this morning. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then in the same way, after he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. King Jesus, the Messiah and Lord, we are thankful that this morning for the reminder that you are with us, that you never leave us or forsake us, that, that through your death, and the price for our sins, and through your resurrection and your ascension to the right hand of God the Father, that you are now available to us to be with us whenever we, at all times, through your Holy Spirit. And Lord, you have connected us one to another as, as brothers and sisters in the family of God. As we seek to follow you, we don't follow you alone. We don't remember you alone. We don't do this life alone. We do this with you and we do this with one another. And even as we talked about grieving this morning, Lord, we, don't, we aren't intended to, to grieve alone. We're intended to invite you into that and to invite one another into that and then to step in and walk with others through it. We thank you that, that you do that with us in and, and both the good and the bad. And we are grateful for it this morning, Lord. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to close with a song that um, the author wrote in response to grief after losing her dad. And this is a way that tethered her to the Lord writing this. with me. 
Well, I was a little frustrated that Jamie gave away the ending next week. So, But uh, they also say, you know, leave them wanting more, right? Uh, I think some of the beauty of that is that we see kind of a, a little cliffhanger in a sense that, that there was doubt, there were questions, there was mourning, there was lamenting, and yet Jesus won't leave them there. We'll see that next week, that Jesus won't leave us in those places, but he'll move us towards places and call us out towards places of of redemption and resurrection and new life. So I am looking forward to, to getting to that part next week with you. So we invite you to come back and join us, and then today to go out and take the presence of Jesus with you wherever you go. Have a great afternoon.